Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim hey, We're Cuban. teaching out of Romans chapter 6 today. And we're going to start a series titled Slave to Righteousness. And I want to do this in three sermons. I want to talk Romans 1 through 7, 6 from 1 through 7 today, 8 through 14 next Sunday, and then the rest of the chapter, the Sunday following that, talking about how we're dead to sin, alive to God, and finally, ultimately, slaves set free leading into the fact that there is a resurrection coming. Amen? And so, just know that that's where we're headed. But today, I want to talk to you very specifically about what it is to be dead to sin. God calls us to be dead to sin. And so, this is, before I, before I talk about that, and I'm going to talk about that, like I said, out of Romans 6, 1 through 7, I want to tell you a story, <clears throat> excuse me, about a guy named Sam Childers. Some of you may know this name. Most of you probably don't. But Sam Childers was a man who grew up as a young child traveling from place to place. A true story. They actually made a movie about his life. He traveled from town to town until he was about 12 years old. His parents were in construction, so they were always traveling, trying to find new jobs. And they finally settled in a particular town when he was 12, and he immediately fell in with the wrong crowd. Because let me tell you, who you hang out with is who you will become. And at 12 years old, he tried alcohol, very quickly moved to marijuana, from marijuana, heroin, and lived a life in his teenage and adult years as an addict to both alcohol and heroin. They said he was a very violent man due to these addictions that he would do whatever was necessary to get what he needed to feed these addictions. He joined the outlaw motorcycle gang, which in fact increased the probability of violence in an already violent man. And so he was violent, surrounded himself with violence, and ultimately wasn't scared to hurt or be hurt by anyone until something miraculous happened in his life. Specifically, something miraculous happened in his wife's life. Her name was Lisa. Lisa quit her job as a stripper. Because she had wandered into an Assembly of God church, heard the gospel message, and gave her life to the Lord there. And him, out of duty, obligation, husband, responsibility, for whatever reason, he decided that he would at least go to her Go with her to church. So he went with her to church. And there, I don't know how long it took, but in that small church, he also gave his life to the Lord. So he moved from a life of violence and addiction to a life of serving God. One day he was at his church, and he heard about a mission to Africa, specifically South Sudan, Uganda area. And he wanted to go. He signed up, and he went, and he, he was horrified to find out when he got there that there was a genocide happening there 
and they were killing children in genocide, that they were amputating limbs from children, doing violent, horrible things to them. I'm not being graphic for the sake of being graphic, but to paint the picture of what he saw. Those that weren't killed were recruited, and when I say recruited, I mean forced into military service. If they were old enough to carry a gun, they were forced to carry one. And he was appalled by this, as most of us should be or would be, and he decided to start his own orphanage there in the South Sudan. And because of his background and as violent as he was, he, he built this compound, razor wire, had armed security guards so that the people wouldn't come in and re-steal the kids as he stole them from them. The name of the movie, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it's a, it's a really good redemption movie called Machine Gun Preacher. And let me tell you, that's a very apropos title because he comes off like a buzzsaw all the time. But let me tell you, he is dead in his sin. He became a preacher from violence. He became a preacher from addiction. He declared the gospel message regardless of who he used to be. I have a question for you. How can a man like that declare the same thing that Paul declared and be confident in it? How can a man like that declare what Paul declares in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians verse 9 and 10? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, which he would have been, nor idolaters, which he would have been, nor adulterers, which he would have been, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, which I'm pretty sure he wasn't, nor thieves, which he would have been, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers. All of these things that he used to be, he as a preacher would declare, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How does he move from who he was to being able to declare this with confidence. Let me tell you, he did it the same way that Paul did it. He recognized that the blood of Jesus Christ didn't just cover his sin, but cleansed him completely from his sin and made him dead in his sin. Where we were once dead to sin, we are now dead, or we were dead in sin, we are now dead to sin. There was a time in our not so distant past, where we were dead in our sin. I want you to think about that for a minute, because it's something we hear in church all the time. But we were dead, unable to respond, but provoked by the Spirit to respond. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, many of you are familiar with this text, but I'm going to read it anyway, because I think it's some of the most beautiful texts in all of Scripture. Ephesians 2, starting in 1, says, and you were dead. Everybody say, were. Dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind. And were by nature, which means by very birth, children of wrath, deserving wrath, even as the rest. Y'all, Pastor Jim, that's you said this is the most beautiful, some of the most beautiful scripture in all your Bible. That sounds horrific. 
because I haven't got to the beautiful part yet. Here's the beautiful part. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's beautiful. That we were dead in our sin, but that God made us dead to sin. Because he is rich in mercy and great in love. Mercy is one of those Christian words that we love to use, but many of us, if asked to explain what it meant, would stand there with our mouth open, not sure exactly what to say. Let me tell you what mercy means. Mercy can only be given by someone who has the right to punish you. Mercy is compassion given in the place of judgment where the person who can judge you has a right to judge you. God had a right to judge us because by nature we were children of wrath. But he decided not to and instead show us his love by extending mercy to us. That mercy we know as grace. The undeserved favor of God is his mercy and love towards us. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? The creator of the universe determined to take someone like Sam Childers Jim Kubik Rick Smith and I can name every person in this room that's given your life to the Lord and says I don't care who you were I don't care what you were this is who you are now and he extended us grace because he wanted to our responsibility having been made dead to sin, is to live as though we are dead to sin. And we do that, and I'm going to talk about that in this text, three ways. Let me read the text to you. What shall we say then? Back to chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I love this exclamation point here. How definitive is that? Paul didn't beat around the bush. Paul wasn't trying to split hairs. He just said, no. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. But if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Amen. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Let me tell you, that's powerful. That should move us. That should motivate us. Matter of fact, there's three things that that should provoke in us. There's three things I want to tell you out of this text. The first thing is, grace is our motivator. Grace is our motivator. 
It's amazing to me that he, he starts with this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Christ poured out his life's blood on a cross for us. Should we continue in the sin that we live in? Which means should we maintain the lifestyle of sin that we previously lived? That's what continue means. Keep doing what you were doing. Are you, do you have the right as a son, as an heir of God, to do as you were doing? When you were children of wrath, when you were when the father was uh, when your father was the devil, knowing full well now that having been redeemed by by Jesus, that God is your father now, you have been moved out of darkness into light. All of these are biblical truths. How dare we continue after such a great sacrifice was made for us? Especially considering why that sacrifice was made for us. Let me tell you, nobody took the omnipotent hand of God and twisted it to make him down across for us. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he wanted a relationship with you. He did it because of his love and his mercy and his grace. Because he wanted to extend unmerited favor to you. That's why he did. And woe be it to us, judgment to us, if we continue in that sin. And so he asked, he said, do you continue in sin so grace may increase? I'm tearing this down a little bit at a time, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time because it's important. Because I know that in our finite minds, we ask ourselves stupid questions. We, we consider the reasonableness of God's command to us. Well, I know God said don't do this, but I mean, is he really going to be that mad if I do it? Or I mean, if I do it, he's going to extend grace to me again. Bible says he's faithful to forgive when we repent, right? And restore us to righteousness. Isn't that what the Bible says? So in fact, if we sin and God has to show us grace, aren't we showing him more magnificent the more we sin? No, you're showing yourself an indignant child, deserving of death, is what you're showing yourself. That's why he squashes it. That's why Paul doesn't spend a lot of time explaining it. He says, no, you don't. Stop trying to make reasonable your sin. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What, a, what an incredible question. Stop sinning. That's what he's saying. You know what I love about Paul? He's transparent. Oh, stop sinning doesn't sound very transparent. That sounds very Puritan preacher up on a high podium pointing his finger wagging at me until you realize, if you have never read them together, that chapter 7 turns into chapter 8. You know what Romans chapter 8 is about? All the ways Paul falls short. He says, stop sinning! Well, let me tell you. You're likely still going to sin. You're likely still going to struggle. 
but don't ever don't ever sin on purpose don't set out to sin don't set your heart to sin don't continue don't set up a household in your sin he says this 21 verse chapter 7 I find then that the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members so he's saying listen man I get it I, I, God expects a pursuit of perfection from you but you're not likely to be perfect till you're in the presence of the perfect but stop giving way to the members of your body members means the extensions of your body the limbs of your body your head is a, a member of your body pay attention what you allow your brain to suck you into your arms are members of your body be careful what your body's willing to grab a hold of your legs are members of your body be careful of what you allow yourself to walk into he's warning us he's being transparent to show us the truth that the struggle is real but because of the sacrifice and the fact that it also is real, we're obligated to this struggle. Amen? Because he gave us grace. And in that grace, a new life. He made us a new creation. He took up permanent residence in us. It's amazing to me, and, and I'm sad to say I'm not perfect either. But the thing that crushes me when I sin is that because the Spirit indwells me, wherever my members carry me, grab a hold of or think about, I force the presence of God into that space. This should convict us. Hmm. May it never be May it never be. It can't be because we're dead to sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Know that he gave love to you. He extended grace to you. And that should be the motivator for us to act right. I tell you a story about my wife. She loves it when I do this. My feet hit the ground most every morning. And one of the very first thoughts that I have is always about her. And I don't say that because she's standing in a room. I think it's going to win me some brownie points. As a matter of fact, it's going to get me in trouble because she hates when I do it. <coughs> but it needs to be said. My feet hit the floor and I think of her sacrifice that she makes for us the love that she has for me the way she takes care of our house the way she works so hard and so diligently to not just love me but love the people around her to love the people in this church and pray for them pray for you you know why she does that she does that because she loves me she does that because she loves you there are times when I sit in our living room and I'll just stare at her from the other side of the living room. We have two couches. 
and I'll, I'll stare at her while she sits on the other couch. And it drives her crazy. But I'm just trying to memorize her face. Should there ever be a time when she's not around, I want to remember what she looks like. To see her <coughs> is to be in awe of her. <coughs> this is the same way we should look at God. Her love motivates my love for her. It doesn't cause me to misuse it. It doesn't cause me to say because she is such a magnificent person. I know if I do what I shouldn't do, she's still going to love me. It causes me instead to want to meet her need. To live according to the covenant that we've made. And this is how our love for God and his love for us should motivate us to love him more. If you ever spend time with your feet off the edge of your bed, if you ever just stare intently into the face of God, you will find yourself in a position of awe, in a position of amazement. But you have to do it. Let grace, his extension of unmerited favor to you, be the reason you don't continue your sin. Be the reason that you say, as Paul said, May it never be. Amen? Not only are we called to use grace as our motivator, but we have to understand that Christ's death is our identity. Christ's death is our identity. Three through five reads like this. And let me tell you, I could. three through five is a series all by itself. So I'm going to try to do it justice in five to seven minutes. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too might, so that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of him, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. beautiful truth of the gospel is that in Christ's death we have life our life should be so engulfed in the life of Christ reflecting the life of Christ that he should be our identity that when people see us they see him this is what it is this is what it means to be in Christ we hear, we hear this all the time in Christ, in Christ, with Christ. It means to be fully immersed in Christ. Can I tell you, the word baptism, that full immersion, that to be baptized in Christ, isn't primarily about what happens in this baptismal box. To be baptized in Christ means to be fully engulfed in Him. To be so fully wrapped up in Him, you lose your own identity. You lose who you are in Him. This is what God has called us to do. To, to not only repent, but be baptized. When Peter gave his first sermon and they said, What shall we do? We're cut to the quick. 
He says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sin. He's not saying this water over here is going to wash you clean of your sin. He's saying, be, repent of your sins, immerse yourself completely in Christ Jesus, and let him, through the blood of, that he shed, give you remission of your sins. What happens in this box over here is a physical demonstration of what happens in here. One of the greatest shadows in the Old Testament, if you'll, if you'll ever read through it well enough, you'll see a golden, what, what they call a scarlet thread that runs through the Old Testament, that Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. And they call those, that thread, different shadows, different types, to, to give kind of a reflection of what Jesus will be, what he'll look like, so that they would recognize him when he came. One of those shadows is seen in Noah and the ark. What it means to be in Christ is seen in Noah and the ark. As Noah and his family went into the ark and God closed the door behind them, you couldn't see them anymore. They were completely surrounded, engulfed in their protection, their provision, and their peace. This is what it is to be in Christ. And it doesn't matter who's beating on the wall, what screams or threats you may hear. It doesn't matter the storm that's raging around you. The fact of the matter is, is that as we enter Christ and let God close the door, We fulfill our obligation because of what he's done for us to live in him. That's my challenge today. It's not my only challenge today, but lose yourself in Jesus. And finally, and the reason I love Paul is because he's so pragmatic. He always gives a theology and then a practical response to that theology one of the reasons I love Romans is because it's, it's, it's literally that the first 11 chapters are this is the theology of who you were what you were, who I am, what I did for you all of those things starting in 12, now here's your responsibility to it and he gives us a responsibility even in this text in verse 6 and 7, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. The practical application of the theology we just talked about is to crucify your flesh. As Christ's flesh was crucified, shubadubadoo, as Christ's flesh was crucified, so we too should crucify our flesh. And that's not easy. That means you got to beat it. You got to discipline it. You got to be intentional. I love this verse, but I hate it at the same time. 
Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love that one. I hate this one. 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Who likes discipline? <laughs> Jarhead over here raises his hand. Nobody likes discipline. That's why it's a discipline. If you enjoyed it, it wouldn't be a discipline. It would be a pleasure. People say, what do I do to, to build my spiritual disciplines to where I enjoy doing them? I said, do them until they're no longer disciplines but pleasures. There's a time when you work out, when you first start working out, man, you got to make yourself go work out. Like you got, you got to make yourself go work out. But at some point, if you don't work out, you feel worse than when you did work out when you started. Discipline always becomes joy. But it says, I will discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So we are to crucify our flesh as dead men, dead to immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry according to Colossians 3, 2 through 7. And again, not as an act of legalism, but it is an act of response to the love that he showed us. Everything I've talked to you about today has, has one genesis. That is the love that God poured out on us through Christ Jesus. The fact that I am a new creature, that I am a new creation, that I have been given a new song, a new heart, a new mind, all of that happens because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And if he sacrificed himself, if he allowed his flesh to be crucified and then told his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me, guess what he meant? He meant... Discipline yourself. Pick up your cross. Do whatever's necessary to pound your flesh into submission, even if that means death. Can I tell you, Jesus wasn't the first person they ever saw crucified. That was a habit that had happened years and years and years before Jesus. When he said, pick up your cross and follow me, he knew exactly, they knew exactly what he was saying. Yet in our American theology, we're all, eh, it just means that we can't cuss at work or something lame like that. Let me tell you, God calls us, provokes us, because of the grace that we've been given to be dead to sin, even to the point of death, if that's what it takes, which is perfectly fine, because this world is but a vapor. How would I want to, why would I want to lose eternity for the sake of a vapor? I've said this before, and I said it jokingly the first time, but it was so fitting. We get so wrapped up in the application process, we forget that we're applying for a job. This life is an application process. Keep your eye on the job. 
Amen? And recognize that God loves you. That he gave his life for you. Not so that you could abuse what he gave you. Not that so we could abuse what he gave us. But so that we can grow in it, crucify our flesh in it, and reflect him to others through it.